that you do, that you do, whether it's the Wildcats, the Bearcats, the Bumblecats, or Bunglecats, or whatever you want to call them too, because Jesus is worthy, and He is the one that we should praise tonight. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 3 to 11 uh, tonight as we continue our series, The Church That Jesus Built, and the title tonight is The Aim of Our Instruction. Paul writes to Timothy these words, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they say or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Let's pray tonight together. Father, we thank you for the Word of God, and we thank you that faith comes by hearing, and hearing by this Word, because God, without faith, it's impossible to please you. And so, Lord, perhaps we've come in here tonight too tired to worship, too uh, filled with the world to worship. Perhaps sin has become a part of our life, and we feel unworthy to worship. God, maybe perhaps tonight guilt and shame has silenced our voices and hardened our hearts to where we don't feel the things of God as we used to. Lord, I'm thankful tonight that there's not a 12-step program necessary, that there's not a list of good deeds that we have to carry out to get right with you, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And one of the things that comes by faith is a repentant heart. And so, Lord, tonight I pray that your Spirit would draw those in need. Father, that we would leave here rejoicing in the God of our salvation. And if someone here tonight is lost, that they would meet that Jesus who laid down his life 2,000 years ago, but whose blood is still sufficient and able this very night to cleanse their soul of sin. So, Lord God, I pray once again that you would increase and I would decrease, that your Holy Spirit would speak and that I would just get out of the way and let him move. And we promise to give you glory tonight for everything that happens, and we thank you for what we've already heard and felt. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Imagine that you had an opportunity to write four pages to a young pastor that was getting ready to take on a very difficult situation in his first church. If you had to write in those pages something that would impact him for a lifetime, what would you write down in those brief moments? What would you give that young man to help encourage and instruct him? As we look at Timothy's letter from the Apostle Paul, we see exactly that. A few pages written by the aged Apostle to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, to encourage him and strengthen him and exhort him on how to pastor this difficult church in Ephesus. But I find it interesting that as he writes this letter, of all the things that perhaps I would have begin with, or perhaps you would begin with, he didn't talk about loving his people. He'll mention that, but he didn't begin with that. He didn't talk about praying for his people. Again, he'll talk about that, but he certainly didn't open with it. Of all the things that Paul begins with, he begins with a charge 
That's literally an order. It carries emphasis with it. He's giving an order to Timothy to make sure that he calls out false doctrine and false teachers. And that he preaches the truth in love. Isn't that amazing to think about in a world today where we are so hesitant because we want to love everyone that we don't want to say anything that could offend or hurt someone's feelings. And so we'll allow false doctrine to be spread by false teachers to the damnation of the very people's souls that we claim we love. Is it loving, church, to allow someone to stay in sin and stay in error until they lose their everlasting soul? Is that truly loving? Just so we can stay comfortable and not have to get into any conflict. Listen, Jesus said that when you follow Him, that the gospel that He preached and you will be commanded to preach is offensive. He said that houses will be set against one another. Have you experienced that for your faith? Do you have family members that have disowned you, that have belittled you and ridiculed you because of your faith? Expect that. Don't be shocked by that. Because if you truly desire to follow Christ and preach the truth, the world will hate you because it hated Him first. And He said that. He said that mother will be set against daughter and households against household and you will be persecuted for My name's sake. Why are we surprised? We shouldn't be. And yet, to avoid that, to avoid the very thing that Jesus said we will encounter as true followers, we don't walk in faith and say, I'm going to take up My cross and suffer with Him so that I can be glorified with Him. We say, I'll just pull back into the shadows and stay silent. We'll let somebody else, we'll let someone else proclaim the truth and call out the error. That's not just the pastor's job, church. It's our job as believers. Now listen, I don't say that you go out and intentionally try to be offensive and to, and to get into an argument anytime you can. That's not the aim or the goal of a charge, which we're going to look at in a moment, in doing it in love. But to love people is to love them enough to confront error and to show them the truth so that they can be set free. Amen? If Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and His Word is true, then to withhold that or to compromise that is to twist or compromise the truth. And we simply cannot do that as pastors or as Christians, especially in a world today that's so full of error. Right? Look at the confusion in our world. The confusion is there, number one, because so much false doctrine is preached, and number two, because so little truth is given in, is a response to that, right? And so people are eating up the false because they've never been taught and told the truth in a, in a sound biblical sense. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, charge, look at verse 3, charge certain persons to not teach any different doctrine. Boy, that's a boring word to a lot of people. We don't want to talk about doctrine, but doctrine is critical. And all of you have a theology 
in your life that you believe. You may not have ever went to seminary and maybe never will. You may not be a doctor of theology or have a degree in in doctrine, but you believe doctrine. What you believe about Jesus and the church and salvation is your doctrine. And so you have to have a biblical doctrine, right? And so part of our job as preachers and leaders and elders and, and pastors is to instruct you, to disciple you and teach the truth to you. And so Paul says, charge these men, command these men, order these men to not preach any other doctrine. Don't let this go on. In, in the short letter of Jude, in the third verse of Jude chapter 1, he writes there, Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but listen to what he said, I was going to write to you about the joys of salvation and the bond that we have together in this salvation in Christ, he says, but I found it necessary to write to you an appeal that you contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Contend for that. Strive for that. Put up a fight for that. It's worth it. It's worth it to contend for the faith. We cannot allow error to continue to spread unchecked. We have got to be a voice. As the church, part of our job is to be a light unto the world and salt unto the earth. And we can't do that when we hide our light under a basket or refuse to be salty in our lives and be that salt of the earth. We can't continue to hold back the truth from a world that's dying from error. And so, I love a quote by Pastor Tim Keller. He pastors a church um, in New York City. And he's written many, many books. He says this, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. But on the flip side, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. So we need both. We need truth and we need love. We can't have one and not the other. It won't work. It either falls into just an emotional, uh, sentimental feeling that really gives people no true sound instruction, or we just instruct their minds and we never live out the gospel in front of them and serve people and love people and care for people and show compassion and kindness that is required of us as people that love Jesus. So you have to have both, right? Thank you. Someone's awake tonight. So we go on down. He says, don't let them teach any other doctrine. In verse 4 he says, don't devote, uh, allow them to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. So the Jews were big on genealogy. Um, and in their oral tradition, they would add many stories to the Gospels. And that's why you have many of these Gospel of Thomas and Gospel of Judas. These pseudonyms, which is basically a letter that was written under a false name. So these weren't written by Thomas or Judas. They were written by someone who just used that name. And they would add all these mystical stories and things like that and, and take these genealogies and, and, and twist them. So that's the kind of heresy that Paul was um, speaking about when he said don't let people devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. It was going on and that's why we see many of those writings in first century and beyond Palestine. It was a common practice, right? And so Paul says, don't listen to these people speaking mystical things and going on about these genealogies. Stick to the truth that you have heard from Christ and the apostles and myself, 
right? He's saying stick to the true gospel that we have preached. And then he also says something else in verse 4 that I don't want you to miss. He says instead of worrying about those things, he said rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Stewardship is a word. A steward was somebody that managed a house. So it was usually a slave, matter of fact. So if the owner of the home was wealthy and went away, he would leave one of his slaves in charge to oversee the property, to even care for the child in some sense, or children, right? So it's a household manager. It manages the affairs of the house while the master is away, okay? And so we are called to be stewards of the gospel. Christ, our King, has went away, And he's coming back for his church. But while he's away, he has left the church to carry out the work that he has commanded us to do. To be his hands and feet. To be the messengers of the gospel. That's our duty. To make disciples. Right? And so that's why he left the church as stewards in the earth. In 1 Corinthians 4 verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, This is how one should regard us. So this is the way that people should see us. Ask yourself tonight, if someone in the community was asked to give a report about you, would this be the way that they described your life? Um, This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards, managers of the mysteries of God, because it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Now, when you see the word mystery in the Bible, we're not going into some crime investigation. This isn't, you know, CSI Jerusalem. We're not trying to figure that out, right? A mystery in the Bible, when it's used in that way, just means something that has been previously unrevealed, okay? And what that is, is the gospel going forth, not just to the Jew any longer, but to the Gentile excuse me, to the Gentile as well. So Paul expounds on that in like the letter of Ephesians, for example. He talks about the gospel being proclaimed and that now we are no longer Jew or Greek, bond or free. We're one in Christ. The, the veil has been torn, the partition has uh, been spread aside, and we can now all enter into Christ by faith, regardless right, of who we are, male, female, it doesn't matter. And so, you know, that is the good news of the gospel, that it is now being proclaimed to the entire world, and we are stewards of that message. The problem is, the big problem is, Brother Mark, we don't take it. We don't take it to anybody a lot of the times, but when we do take it to people, we take it to people normally that we're very comfortable with or that are just like us. And that's okay in some senses. Obviously, Mark's talked about this many times. Our circle begins with our family, our friends, the people that we know well. That is our intimate connection. Even Jesus had an innermost circle and went out from there, right? But nonetheless, we can't avoid certain people just because they're different from us or that we're uncomfortable to talk to them. Right? And we do that. We all are like um, the story of the Good Samaritan where we see certain people and we walk around on the other side of the street. Because we don't want to talk to the addict. We don't want to talk to the prostitute. We don't want to talk to the mentally ill. Right? We want to talk to middle-aged, middle-class, white Americans that are just like us. But God may be calling you to someone else. He may put someone else in your life that's a different skin color, a different background than you, a different lifestyle than you. And God may say, there's your one. Go show them the love of Jesus. Go tell them the gospel. What's your response? He said, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Everything that we have is the Lord's. 
And He's given it to us. And He tells us what we ought to do with it. And many times we speak back and say, no God, I've got a better plan. This is what we should do with it. Shall the creature respond to the Creator in such a way? Shall we as finite mortal beings look at the infinite eternal God and try to tell Him how to rule and reign over His creation? That's the response though that we often give. And you see the foolishness and yet we don't even recognize sometimes that our hearts are in that place. That we are responding to the Almighty God in a way that we should never even think about. And so Paul says, we need to be good stewards. Don't get caught up in these things because in verse 5 he gives us, he gives us the aim of our charge, which is the title of this message. The aim of our charge or the aim of our instruction. He says the aim of our charge is love. I want to flip over. Chad, I apologize. I didn't have this verse for you. But I'm going to flip over real quick to Romans 13. I want to read this verse to you. Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. What is Paul talking about when he says that the, the aim of our charge is love? Well, I want to show you this verse, these verses in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10. Because I think it's important that we understand where Paul is going with this. He says in Romans 13, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now that's an interesting statement. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What is he saying? Well, now he's going to call our attention back to Jesus and what Jesus had said in the Gospels. He says, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, You shall not murder. So we're going down some of the Ten Commandments here, right? You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this Word. So the Ten Commandments, he's saying, are all summarized in what? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. How can Paul say something like that? Because listen to what he says in verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. That's interesting. But let's think about it for a minute. When we read down through the Ten Commandments, when we look at the first four commandments, we see laws and commands that direct our relationship between us and God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. You'll have no other gods before me. Right? Keep the Sabbath. Those commands are all focused on the vertical. Us and God. The other six point us to our relationship with human beings. Don't commit adultery. Don't covet. Don't murder. Right? And so what did Jesus say to the lawyer who wanted to know what the greatest command was? Love God and love your neighbor. How does that fulfill the law? Because if you love God and you love your neighbor, notice that, the cross, if you love God and you love your neighbor, you'll keep the commandments. Because you can't love your neighbor and covet from them, or want to commit adultery, or want to murder them. Those two can't go hand in hand. And if you love God, you're not going to have other gods before Him. You're going to honor and serve Him. You're not going to use His name in vain. That is why Jesus and Paul could echo the love and keeping the law is done away with by that love. Right? Do you see how that works? It replaces the law. Have you ever went to the beach when the tide goes out and maybe people have dug holes in the sand and that water as it recedes back out, those puddles 
uh, those holes are filled up with water and you see all types of seagulls and birds come down and, and they're just kind of splashing around in those puddles. And then the, t- the, the tide comes back in and all of a sudden those little puddles are completely consumed and filled in uh, by this limitless amount of water. Those little puddles, are, to me, remind me of the law in, in, in the sense that the law is good, but it's powerless because of our flesh and our fallen natures. And the grace of God is like that flood that comes in. And it consumes everything. What we could not do in our flesh, Christ did for us by becoming one of us without sin and laying down His life on the cross. And that's why He could say that through love to God and love one another, we fulfill the law. And so He commands Timothy and those that preach the Gospel that the aim of what we're doing, church, the reason why we are doing what we do is because we desire to love God and love one another supremely above anything else. The reason why you're here tonight, I hope, is not because you didn't have anything better to do, but because you love God, you love His people, you love His church enough to devote yourself to gather together to worship, to pray, to praise, to serve, to edify, to exhort, to hold one another accountable, to help one another in your time of need. That's why we are here. If we don't love one another, it's a waste of time. Right? If we do anything, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, anything that we do without love is like a clanging cymbal, basically. It's just a bunch of noise, but it doesn't really mean anything. And so he says our charge has got to be from someone that has a heart transformed by love. Now look, let's look at some of the other things real quick that he lists uh, in verse 5. Not only does he say our charge is love, it issues from a pure heart. It's a heart that's been cleansed of sin and cleansed of self, and so it is completely devoted to one, the Lord Jesus. And, and, and in response to that, or from the response of that, to His people. And so again, we understand that none of us live in this state constantly in a practical sense. We talked about on Thursday night a couple weeks ago, positionally, we are cleansed, we are seated with Christ, we're justified, we're righteous, we're saints, we're holy, and nothing can change that positionally. If that could change, then we could lose our salvation, we could be loved one minute and unloved the next, because it would depend on where we're at in our walk. But practically, or positionally rather, we are as saved as we'll ever be. The moment we believed our sins were washed away, we were declared not guilty, we were seated with Christ, we're heirs with Christ, we are adopted into His family, and He doesn't throw away His children. And so that is how we can say that we are saved eternally. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We're secure forevermore. And so when we stumble and fall into sin, our conscience convicts us. The devil whispers in our ears and all of a sudden we feel as though maybe, maybe we've lost it. Maybe we've blown it. Maybe we've been cast away. Maybe God doesn't love us as much anymore. And that's where many struggles come in, don't they? Because we all at times fall, right? But it is the grace of Jesus Christ and the blood that cleanses us from our sins, not our effort. You've got to understand that. If you have a great, great day, God doesn't move you to the top of His favorite list. And if you fall short and blow it, 
He doesn't erase your name. I'm glad his pencil doesn't have an eraser. When he pens your name in the Lamb's book of life, he doesn't erase it. He doesn't cross it out. He doesn't tear that page back out. Right? And so we see that it comes from a pure heart that's devoted to Christ. And when we stumble and fall, that pure heart says, I have sinned against my Savior. I want to confess that sin. I want to repent of that sin. And I want to get back to walking with Him again. Not I need to get back to my salvation. You never lost it. But you did break fellowship with Him in the sense that you've lost... You've felt like this before. You've lost your joy. You've lost your assurance. Your faith has dwindled to perhaps where you doubt now, right? Sin can do all of those things in your life. And so a pure heart wants to repent and wants to confess and reconcile so that you can get back on track with God as far as your day-to-day sanctification and your walk with Him. And that's what Paul's encouraging Timothy, to have a love with this instruction that comes from a pure heart. And what's the next one? A clear conscience. A clear conscience. There's a lot of confusion today about what the conscience is and what it isn't. Right? That word in the Greek literally means to know together. And so really your conscience... Think of a, think of a radar, for example. When you see the radar, it picks up foreign objects, enemy objects, things that may or may not shouldn't be there, right? That pop up on the screen. And they warn us of something coming into our life, coming at us. But even a radar is useless if it's not calibrated right. Okay? And so when we think about a conscience, God has put that in every man to be a guide. But your conscience is not a foolproof guide because we're fallen creatures. And so while the conscience is there as a good thing, it can become seared to the point where it no longer functions. It's out of calibration or it's not working at all. So the, the, the conscience, if directed by the Word of God, is a good thing. But it's not a foolproof guide. The, only the Holy Spirit and the Word is a foolproof guide for us. But they can work together if they're calibrated, if the conscience is calibrated, if you're transformed by the renewing of your mind through the Word of God. And so let, let me show you a few verses about the conscience real quick. The first one is Romans 2, verses 14 through 16. When we sin against God... If you have a tender conscience, you feel absolutely horrible, don't you? That's the worst feeling in the world, is to be in church on a Saturday night or Sunday morning, and the preacher is preaching right at you. And man, your toes are hurting, and you're sweating, right? And you're fanning yourself. Man, it's hot in here, right? And then the invitation, and you go, on that front seat. And man, your arms are shaking because you're holding on so tight because you don't want to walk up that aisle and you don't want people to know that you've got sin in your life, although we already know you do because you're a human being and you've got sin in your life. And you hold on and you say, man, I've got to get out of here. And you, you try to get out to the parking lot and somebody wants to talk to you and you're still fanning yourself, right? I've got to get out of here. It's so hot. That's a horrible feeling. You don't have to feel that way. Maybe you've been coming in here for a while. Maybe you quit reading the Bible because it convicts you and you get tired of that. So then you put away your Bible and you quit praying because it just you, you don't feel anything or you feel unworthy to pray, right? And see how the devil is, is pulling you away from the things that you need? You need the church. You need the Word. You need prayer. You need fellowship. And he says, "Up, oh, get away from that. Those feelings, you don't want to feel that way. And he pulls you farther away from the things that you need, specifically God. 
right? And so listen to what Paul writes in Romans 2, 14 through 16. When the Gentiles, so any non-Jewish person, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, so the law was specifically given on Mount Sinai to the children of Israel, right? That was God's chosen people, and he gave them the law. They are, they are his chosen ones in the sense that the oracles, the laws and commands of God were given to the Jewish people, not the Gentiles. Okay, that's all Paul's saying there. So when the Gentiles who do not have the law, but listen to what he says, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law or literally a testimony to the law themselves. Even though they do not have the law, by nature they do what it requires, they are a law to themselves. And so what's he saying there um, basically is that the Gentiles have something inside of them that is that is directing them and pointing them to the truth because God has placed that conscience inside every one of his people. So let me read a little bit more of that verse to you. Um, He says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. See what he's saying there? They weren't given the law literally like Israel, but God has put that conscience and written that law on their hearts. And so they by nature have this understanding of what's right and wrong. Most people, unless they're completely given over to a debased mind, have some sense of morality, right? Most people, most people when they see a child molested or we'll use a common example recently an animal tortured what do they what happens inside of that person anger wells up that was wrong what was done to that baby or that animal was wrong and then what do they want they want justice justice for what has happened There was a crime committed, and the perpetrator must pay. Where does that come from? Where does that moral fiber come from? It comes from within because God has written on the soul of every human being that's made in His image the law, the moral code of right and wrong. And your conscience bears witness to that, and Paul says either accuses you or excuses you. That's why when... The Spirit and the Word lead you in one direction. And you choose to do something else. And that conviction falls. It's your conscience that's condemning you. Because God gave you that direction. The radar showed up. Don't touch that. Don't watch that. Don't go there. Don't do that. And you said, nah, I'm going to turn the switch off and go there anyway. And then you feel absolutely horrible. You feel guilty. You feel condemned. Right? That's what the conscience can do. But it can also excuse you. Isn't it a good feeling to know that you can lay your head down at night and know that you have been faithful to God and faithful to your family and faithful to your church and that there's no charge brought against you? That's a good feeling. You can have that clear conscience. And Paul says, if you believe he wrote Hebrews, he says in Hebrews 10.22 that Christ changes our conscience and cleanses us. He says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Christ makes a change in us through grace, by faith, we're born again. And so our conscience that was once directed by the world 
now can be set right. But that's a process, right? When we get saved, some of our thoughts and our attitudes, boom, immediately change, right? Like the instant that you get up from your knees and are born again, a lot of things completely change. But there's other things in your life that kind of hang on for a while, don't they? And it, it's a process of becoming more like Jesus and weaning out some of those habitual sins that still indwell in you. And that's the battle every day. And Paul says in Acts 24.16, I, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, so think about, you think how godly we picture him to be. He said, I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. He's saying, I put a lot of effort into every day making sure that I do the things that the Word of God commands me and that God would want of me so that when I go to bed at night, I can have a clear conscience, not only between God, but between people. Right? You can't love God and cheat your employer. You can't love God and, and, and hate your neighbor. You can't love God and not like the person across the aisle from you in church. That's why he says if you come to the altar to bring your gift and you've got something against your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother. It's absolutely impossible for you to worship God in spirit and truth and hate your neighbor. It's impossible. You have to get things right with the people that have wronged you or that you have wronged before you can be right with God. And that's something that we learn in time. It's not always easy, but that's what's required. And so Paul says that is the charge to us. Um, from love, from having a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's basically, he's just saying, don't be a hypocrite. Be who God's called you to be. Be who you claim to be. If, if this is who you are in here on Saturday, this is who you ought to be out there the rest of the week. If you're two different... A hypocrite is someone that wears a mask. That's what the word means in the Greek. It was somebody that put on a show. They put on a mask for the play and then they took it off and was somebody else. Don't be two different people. Don't be two different people. If you're here tonight and you're struggling with sin, own it, admit it, confess it, and get rid of it. Lay it down on the altar and give it to Jesus. And be the true person that He's called you to be. There's no shame in admitting that you've fallen short. But don't be a hypocrite and pretend that you're somebody you're not. You can be transformed by the grace of God tonight. And that's what Paul closes up with. Look at what he goes down through, and I won't spend a lot of time in this, but he says these false teachers in verse seven or verse six, they've swayed from the faith. In verse seven, they they want to teach the law and don't understand what they're talking about. And then he goes through in the next couple of verses and talks about what we spent a few weeks talking about the law, the old covenant, and the new. The law is good. It has a purpose. But the purpose is not to save you. If you have grown up in religion that's taught you, here's a list of things you do, here's a list of things you don't do, and if you can keep that list pretty close, you're a good moral person and God is going to be happy with you. You're never, ever, ever going to make it into heaven with that standard. You're not. Because he said if you try to keep the law, James says if you try to keep the law and fail in one point, you're guilty of it all. You may have a better track record than me, or Brother Jeff, or Brother Mark, or anybody else. But if you failed in one point, you're guilty of it all. And that's it. And so you need the one that was sinless and spotless that died in your place and washed away your sins. You can't work off your debt. He paid the debt for you. He said it's finished. And so Paul said these guys are misusing the law. And they're pointing you in the wrong direction. And you're going to die in your sins if you keep listening to these people. You need to know the truth. 
And listen, there's a lot of churches that will preach to you what you want to hear. There's a lot of churches that will, that will make it all about you. That will tell you how to have your best life now. That will tell you how to have wealth and health and prosperity. That will say that you are the apple of God's eye and He just is in love with you. And He just longs for you. And He can't do anything without you. And heaven is going to be a better place because of you. And they put man right up on that pedestal and the flesh loves that. But the reality is that we are sinners desperately wicked and in need of grace. And were it not for the blood of Jesus Christ and His sacrifice, we would not have any relationship with God. We would have no hope of heaven. And He is the only way to have access to God. And that's not the popular message. And that's why a lot of churches today don't preach about the blood. They don't preach about sin. They don't preach about repentance. They don't preach about judgment. And I don't want to get so hung up on those things that that's all you talk about because God is a God of love and mercy and grace and praise Him for that. But you can sway either way too much. And so we need to be clear about why the Gospel is good news. It's good news because... We were hopelessly lost, and God loved us enough to send His Son in our place. And He doesn't ask us to work for that gift. He offers it freely, and we receive it by faith. And that's what Paul closes this this verse with tonight, is in verse 11. He says, don't listen to those that teach false things, that live these sinful, ungodly lives, but rather, in accordance to the gospel of glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. He said that the truth is in the gospel that I've been given. Remember, Paul was called to be an apostle. He didn't speak in his own accord. He spoke on the authority of Christ Himself. Right? And as pastors and shepherds, we're not called by man. We're called by God. And we should not stand... I should never stand up here and tell you my opinion to try to, to, try to give you um, little stories... Uh, about what I think is religion and all that stuff, my call is to preach to you the Word of God. I can't save you. I can't do anything for you other than to point you to Jesus. And I pray that I do that every time I get a chance to stand before you. And that's why we give these invitations, which we're about to do. Because as we preach the Word, the Spirit convicts, and the Spirit draws, and the Spirit opens your eyes... And maybe you're sitting here tonight and you're saying, man, I understand for the first time exactly what this gospel is. I understand that I need a Savior and that I've never really trusted in Christ. I've never ever turned to Him in faith and asked Him into my life to forgive me. That's what the invitation is for. We're asking you to come. You say, why do I need to come? Because God says that you confess Him before men and He will confess you before His Father. We're not parading you up here like some kind of circus dog and pony thing. We want to rejoice with you because the angels are rejoicing when a sinner gets saved. So we're not asking you to come in here so we can guilt you or talk about you. We're asking you to come and respond in faith and God will save you and we can rejoice with you. And maybe you've made that decision, but man, you sure strayed far from where you started. There was a church in Ephesus that left their first love. And Paul just told them, repent and do your first works. Remember what it was, if you were married, if you've ever been married, you remember what it was like when you first got married and went on the honeymoon? The honeymoon love, right? The honeymoon season, right? Maybe some of you are still there. That's a good thing if you are. We should all work towards that. But when you get saved, you have that honeymoon love for Jesus. You, you read the Bible five hours a night. You go out there and you witness to everybody that will listen, and you're obnoxious. 
because you're trying to tell everybody about Jesus and they say, leave me alone, what's wrong with you, what happened to you? You was at the bar last Saturday, now you want me to come to church on Sunday, you used to cuss like a sailor and now you talk like a saint, what happened to you? You got born again, didn't you? And you wanted everybody to know about it because you wanted them to have that. But then in time, that, that light gets a little dim and that zeal kind of fades and you're not as hot as you used to be, you lose that honeymoon love. And we get, we get comfortable with that. We say, well, that's just normal. You know, we're on fire for three months, six months, first year, and then we just kind of die off. That's not how it's supposed to be. Paul says, or John says to Ephesus, come back to your first love. Repent. If you've lost that fire tonight, church, you can have it back. You can have it back. You can come in here and sing songs to God and mean it. Right? Because your faith, I'm going to be honest with you, and the people that sing songs up here can tell you, your face tells you that you're a liar. When you sing, oh, how I love Jesus, and you look like you ate lemons. <laughs> right? I always tell you, if you can't sing it from your heart, don't sing it. So tonight, I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just trying to say, as Caleb and Beth comes, if there's things in your life that you need to repent of, or you want God to change, He can do that. So let's pray, and then we'll stand, and if you need to come, the altar's open. I'd love to talk to you about a relationship with Christ. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, and we thank you for your spirit. And now, Lord, we ask you to do what only you can, to open blind eyes, to soften hard hearts, to change lives for eternity. God, to let people in this room tonight see that you love them and you died for them. And they can have a relationship with the God of the universe tonight if they'll come by faith. And Lord, the people in this room that are born again believers, that have given their life to you, man, you've got something great for them. An opportunity to serve you and live for you, and be a part of your kingdom work. God, help us to see that that's much more important than anything the world offers. And Lord, that tonight we can have that fire and desire back to serve you and put you first and raise our families um, as an example of what a true believer looks like, that we can be the fathers and husbands and leaders as men that we need to be, that we can be wives that are humble and, and, and like a Proverbs 31 woman, and we can have children that see our faith and don't just hear about it. And God, help us tonight to be a church, a family, a body of believers that lives out the Word of God before you and before one another. Lord, have your way in this invitation, and we'll give you thanks for it all in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing tonight, will you...